Alright, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. And the, the title of today's message is Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. And that might seem rather esoteric. And what in the world is moralistic therapeutic deism? Don't worry, we will, I will explain what that means. And it will make sense to you. It's not as difficult as it sounds. But we've been preaching through 1 Kings in my church. Actually, we just finished not too long ago. And one of the things that you keep seeing happening in the book of, of Kings is that the people of, of Israel, they turn away from God. And they start worshiping other gods. And sometimes they don't just worship the other gods. They kind of mix in the religions of the people around them into their religion. And to the, they're supposed to worship God. They're supposed to worship the God of Israel, Yahweh alone. And he is the God who created everything. He is the God who is alone as God. There is no other God. That's what the Israelites are supposed to believe. That's how they're, what they're supposed to practice. They're only supposed to worship him. But they, they look at the people around them and they want to be like them. They, they don't want to be different. They're supposed to be different. That's why they're there. But they get tempted to be like everybody else and like the nations around them. And they incorporate the worship of other gods into the worship of of Yahweh. One of the ways that they do this throughout the book of 1 Kings is, is Asherah. And Asherah is a, was a wooden pole that represented a female deity or a female goddess. And they would actually, you actually, if you looked in archaeological digs, there are, there are inscriptions that talk about Yahweh having a wife, which is completely against what the Old Testament teaches, completely against how they were supposed to worship but they assign um, Yahweh a wife. And the reason they do this is they want to lower God down to a point where they can understand Him. They want to lower God down to a point where He's like the other gods and He's easier to approach. But He's not holy. He's not different. He's not all-powerful. He's not the only Creator. He's not God alone. But it's easier for them. It's, it's more like everybody else. And so they bring God down and they lower Him. And we see this throughout the book of 1 Kings. If you read the book of Judges, you see it throughout the book of Judges. This is a common thing that happens in the Old Testament. And God sends prophets to prophesy against this and call them to repent and turn away from this. What we're going to read today is, is fairly familiar. And just keep this in the back of your mind, this story. And then we're going to go into the, the meat of our message. Chapter 18, 1 Kings. And I'm going to start in verse 20. And what has happened is that there is, a, there is a, a drought in the land because Elijah told Ahab that there would be a drought. And um, Elijah went into hiding for a time, and now Elijah's back. And he's going to have a confrontation with King Ahab and with the prophets of Baal. And Baal is the false god that the Canaanites worshipped. He's the god of thunder. He's the god of lightning. He's the god of rain. And, they, and that's important, so remember that. He's the god of lightning and thunder and rain. So, verse 20, chapter 18. So, Ahab sent all the people of Israel, sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came down and all the people said, how long, and he said to all the people, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, if Yahweh is God, then follow Him. But if not, if follow Baal, if Baal is God. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am a prophet of Yahweh. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So there's one prophet of the true God, Elijah. There's 450 prophets of the false God, Baal. And they're all gathered here together. Let two bowls be given to us. 
And let them, let the, the 450, they choose which one they want. And they, they can cut it in pieces. They'll lay it on the wood of the altar, but don't light it on fire. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood. And I won't light it on fire. And you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of Yahweh, and the God who answers by fire, He is God. Now this should be easy for the God of lightning. Right? The God of lightning should be able to send fire down from heaven. That shouldn't be that difficult of a, of a task for him. So all the people answered it as well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself a bull and prepare it because you're many and then call on the name of your God, but don't put fire to it. So they take the bull that was given to them and then they prepared it and they called on the, of the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh, Baal, answer us, but there's no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah starts making fun of them. He mocks them, saying, cry out loud because he's a god. Perhaps he is musing. Perhaps he's meditating on something. Perhaps he's thinking, this one's kind of funny. It's almost potty humor. I'm sorry, but it's actually in the Bible. Perhaps he's relieving himself. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. So maybe your god's going to the bathroom. That's not why he's answering. He's making fun of them. Uh, maybe he's on a long journey. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe you need to wake him up. Call out louder, louder, louder. And at midday past, they're, they're cutting themselves. So they're running, they're going around this altar. They're in a, in a, in a, in a dizzy. And they're cutting themselves and they're gashing themselves and blood's pouring out. And the, the thought is, is that their God will look on them and have pity on them if they cut themselves. And there's this really nasty way of worshiping, but this is what they're doing. And they're trying to get their God to respond, but nothing happens. Nothing happens because why? He's not there. He's not God. There is no Baal. So they're calling out to someone who will not answer Him because He doesn't exist. But nothing happens. Midday passes. They raved on to the time of the offering, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to Me. And people came near to Him. And He repaired the altar of Yahweh that had been torn down. And Elijah took 12 stones. There's 12 tribes of Israel. He takes 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of Yahweh. And he made a trench about the altar as great as it would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and he cut the bull in pieces and he laid it on the wood. Then he does something that, that the Baals didn't do. The Baal prophets didn't do. He says, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Mount Carmel is really close to the, to the sea of the Mediterranean Sea. So they're running down the mountain. They fill up the water. They pour it on the altar. Four jugs. He has them do it three times. Four times three is twelve. So it's just like this to twelve tribes. He has twelve huge um, jars of water poured onto the altar. And they do it three times and it says the water ran down the altar and filled the trench with water. So they dug a trench around the altar. That's filled up with water. The altar is thoroughly soaked. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that You are God in Israel and that I am Your servant and that I have done all these things at Your Word. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me, that this people may know that You O Yahweh, our God, and that You have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offerings. It consumes the bull. It consumes the wood. It consumes the stones. It consumes the dust. It licks up the water in the trench. So the God of lightning, the God of thunder, God Baal, can't do a thing. 
And Yahweh doesn't just burn up the burns up the stones, he burns up the dirt, he burns up the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let no one escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them to the brook Kishon and he slaughtered them there. Just, just briefly said, but that would be a rather nasty thing to observe, but that's what happens. And at this point, then this drought that has been um, on the land, he, he calls into it. He prays to God. He asks God to, to bring rain. And it, he, he prays several times. And finally, he sees just a little cloud that comes and it turns into this great rainstorm and the drought is over. So keep that story in mind. That's not the, the bulk of what we're going to be talking about today. But just the, the basic message of that story is that the God, the false gods of, of the land, the false gods of the Canaanites, they were powerless. When the people called on them, they didn't answer. And there were very attractive reasons to worship the Baals. Um, some of them were, were related to, to sinful things. And, and there, were, there were sexual reasons that, that, that people worshipped the Baals because there was a lot of those types of things incorporated into the worship. So some very sensual reasons that you might be attracted to this type of worship. Another reason the Israelites would be attracted to this type of worship is everybody else worshipped that way. And they were odd. There was no, no other people that worships one God, that worships one Creator, that worships the only God. And everybody else incorporates all these other gods into their God, Godhead. So the Israelites are tempted in a lot of ways to do this. But in the end, these false gods that they were worshipping, they could do nothing for them. They didn't listen because they weren't there. They didn't hear because they weren't there. They didn't respond because they weren't there. Okay, so that phrase that we used earlier, moralistic therapeutic deism, that really long phrase, what in the world does that mean? There's a fellow by the name of Christian Smith, and he did a sociological study on what is the majority religion in the United States. And he called it moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, when he says that, it doesn't mean that there's anybody who says, hey, that's my religion. I'm a moralistic therapeutic deist. There's nobody who says, that's what my religion is, that's what I believe. There aren't anybody who subscribes to that openly or even realizes that's what they are. But when you look at people's real beliefs, when you get down to what people really believe, that's what he calls them. And we'll go into that a little bit. Before we go into that, I think it's important to think about truth from a Christian perspective. So when we talk about who is God, and we're going to talk about a lot of things really briefly because I just want to get kind of a a broad stroke of theology before we start talking about what's wrong with with this religion. When we talk about God, there's two concepts that are really important to get. One is that God is transcendent, and that's a fancy word that talks about how God is other. God is different than us. God is separate than us. We're not God. We're not part of God. God isn't in everything. God isn't everything. That's pantheism or panentheism. But we talk about that God is separate from us. So God is creator. God is all-powerful. God is, is distinct from us. God is beyond our ability to understand in, in, a, in many ways. That's, that's God's transcendence. His imminence means that he's, he's with us and He relates to us. So God is both separate from us God is different than us. He's all-powerful. He's beyond our understanding, but yet He's made Himself known to us. He's imminent. means He's with us. We can know Him because He's made Himself known to us. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit is within us. 
and he sanctifies us, he grows us. Those, those, are, those are ways in which God is both separate from us and transcendent, and he's imminent with us and present. When we talk about what humans are and what our purpose is, we were created to represent God and to worship God, to image God. That when we look at each other as human beings, we should be reminded of who God is. Because God is creative. God is creator. We are creative. That God is a rational being, and we are rational beings. But the purpose of human beings, the reason that we exist, is to glorify God and to make Him known. Glorify God and to make Him known. To know God and to to bring glory to Him. And and what the Christian life is supposed to look like is is we're ambassadors for Christ. That we're we're those who go out and we preach the Gospel, that we, we, we represent Him. That we're supposed to be growing in Christ-likeness. We're becoming more and more like Christ in our daily walk. That's called sanctification. One thing that's not very popular in Christian teaching and doctrine is that if you read the New Testament, it talks a lot about suffering. <laughs> People don't like to talk about suffering. But there is nowhere in the Bible that says that once you become a Christian, that you're not going to suffer anymore. That's completely against what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That suffering is part of the Christian life and it's a way that we grow in our Christian faith. Um, That church life is important. We're part of a body that we use our gifts that God has given us. Prayer is very important. And prayer isn't, isn't, the purpose of prayer isn't to come before God and give Him a list of these are things that you need to do for me. Right? Sometimes we do that, right? We come before God in prayer and we say, hey God, this is what we, you need to do. That's making us God, not God God, right? When we pray, we're declaring our reliance upon God. We're declaring our submission to God's will. And we're seeking God's will. That's why we pray. Talking about sin, salvation, from a Christian perspective, from what the Bible teaches, we're all sinners. None of us are worthy of of salvation in and of ourselves. That we have all turned away from God. Romans 3 says that there is none righteous, not even one. But that because of what Christ did for us, then we, we can be saved. Death and suffering entered this world because of human sin, and the solution, of, the solution to it is in Jesus Christ, God, who took on human flesh, took the sin of the world, suffered the wrath of God upon Himself, rose from the dead, conquered death, and all must be saved through Him. There's no other way. You can't save yourself. God's not going to look at you and your, your individual life and say, because of how good a person you are and all the good things that you've done, I'm going to let you into heaven. Or I'm going to let you into the new heavens and the new earth. Or I'm going to save you because of your merit. That's not what Scripture teaches. All must be saved through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And we believe that someday Jesus is going to return. and He's going to judge the world. And that's both a, an awesome thing and a scary thing. That's broad strokes of theology. When you talk about theology, if you talk to Pastor Rick, he studied theology for several years. I've studied for theology for several years, and I'm just trying to get you a broad stroke of theology in a few minutes. But those are just things to keep in mind as we move into what is moralistic therapeutic deism. Because I want you to see the contrast between true Christianity and, and this false version of it. Now, in that sociological study, I'm talking about... This, this man named Christian Smith did a study said the majority religion in the United States is moralistic therapeutic deism and it, he finds it uh, it doesn't really matter 
whether he's talking to Mormons or Catholics or Christians or Muslims or Buddhists or non-religious people in general, most people hold the same beliefs in this regard. Not everybody, but most people hold these same beliefs. And here are the basic five beliefs of moralistic therapeutic deism, what he calls the majority religion in the United States. And he did this primarily among younger people, but it's true among older people as well. First, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watched over human life on earth. And they may not seem so bad right off the bat. There's a God who existed. He created everything. But this is a God who's not extremely active. This is a God who just more watches. This is a God who's, who's a little bit more distant. He's not a God who expects a lot from us. Number two, this is what God does expect. God wants people to be good, nice, fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most other world religions. And third, and this is really the centerpiece of it, that central goal of life, even the purpose of life, is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Fourth, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he is needed to solve a problem. And lastly, good people go to heaven when they die. And the moralistic therapeutic deism, so let me explain those terms. Moralistic, basically what, what they're saying when they're saying moralistic is to being happy, because remember the goal is to be happy. The goal is to feel good about yourself. Is being a good moral person. That the way that you'll be happy, one of the main ways to reach happiness is to be nice to other people. And it's more an emphasis on being nice or tolerant. Kind, pleasant, responsible. You work on self-improvement. You do your best to be successful. The therapeutic is solving problems. So it's about therapeutic benefits. It's not a religion of repentance from sin. God calls us to repent from our sins, to turn from our sin, and, and to turn to Christ. This is not a religion of repentance. This is not a religion of prayer. This is not a religion of building character through suffering. Remember, because God wants us to be happy. That's the purpose that they believe. It's about feeling good, happy, secure, and at peace. So when you have something that's going on in your life where you don't feel happy, then you turn to God to God solve those problems. But God is there to help you with those problems. And that's pretty much it. Other than that, then God doesn't expect much from us. Prayer is about feeling better about yourself. And as long as somebody is happy with their faith or with their religion, why would you talk to them from, from this perspective? And deism, deism is that God created the world, God exists, He set up some basic moral parameters of the universe, but otherwise He's absent and He's distant. That's what deism is, that God is, is not involved in the world. It's kind of that clockmaker thing that God made the world like a clock, He set it off and then He let it just run its course. God's job is to solve problems and to make people feel good, and He intervenes at times, but otherwise it's just like watching a play. And if you look at the interviews, it's actually rather disturbing. So, he did 3,000 interviews of young people. And what he's interviewing them is he's asking what they believe. He's asking what, the, what their faith means. What it means to be a Christian. Or when he's talking to Jews, what it means to be a Jew. Or what it means to be a Muslim. And out of 3,000 interviews, 47 mentioned sin as being something important in their faith. Seven mentioned Jesus' resurrection. So out of 3,000 interviews, seven people mentioned Jesus' resurrection. Four mentioned the Trinity. Three mentioned loving one's neighbor. Zero mentioned justification. Zero mentioned sanctification. 
But feeling happy was mentioned over, over 2,000 times in 3,000 interviews. And at the end of his paper, Christian Smith says, it's not so much that Christianity in the United States is being secularized. A lot of times that's what we worry about. Is it's Christianity is becoming more and more secular. He's saying rather, more subtly, either Christianity is at least degenerating into a pathetic version of itself, or, more significantly, Christianity is actively being colonized and displaced by a quite different religious faith. That it's being replaced by something that isn't really what it is. Historically, biblically, theologically. So I want to go through these, these points here and just really briefly touch on them from a Christian perspective in opposition to it. First, that God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life. It's not wrong straight off the bat, just as the Word said. It's not wrong that God created the world, right? It's not wrong that God created us. It's not wrong to say that God exists. It's not wrong to say God ordered the world and watches over human life. But sometimes I, I think that what people, when people say things like that, it doesn't really matter what you mean by God. And sometimes we're tempted to not see the value in, in theology and studying the deeper things of God. The Trinity is very important in understanding who God is. The Trinity is not important in something like moralistic, therapeutic deism, right? When we talk about God as transcendent, we think about God as Father and God as Creator. And how God created something separate from Himself. That's, that's illustrating God's transcendence and His separateness, His holiness and His greatness. He's enthroned above. But we also, it's easy if we don't think of the Trinity, we forget that God is with us. The Holy Spirit is with us. God's imminence. God's related to us. Um, the greatest example of God's imminence is Jesus Christ. And we just finished celebrating the Christmas season not that long ago. But Jesus Christ becoming human and entering into this mess <laughs> that we live in. This, the, the sin and the suffering and the, the pain of the, of the human life, the existence that we have. That God entered into that in Jesus Christ. And He suffered and lived among, among us. That's a great illustration of God's imminence. You don't keep in mind the Trinity and how God relates to us in different ways through that Trinity. Sometimes it would be easy to lose sight of some of these things and, and find yourself moving into, into this. And there's other things you could talk about too, but really this is one of those sermons that could be seven hours long. So uh, some of these need to be more in our own personal study or, or, or developed later. But it's important to study theology. And sometimes we think of theology as dry and something not important, but it is. Second, that God wants us to be good, nice, and fair to each other. That sounds good. God doesn't want us to be mean, okay? God doesn't want us to be cruel. God doesn't want us to hate each other. That's not what I'm saying. But God wants us to be holy. Holy means different. Holy means set apart. That's what God has called us to be. Loving your neighbor is part of being holy. But I, I think what, what this is saying is that God wants us to be nice. And nice is different than good. Nice is different than kind. Nice is a very vapid word. Actually, originally, the word nice meant um, stupid. If you look it up in like the 13, 14, 1500s, the etymology of the word nice, it means stupid and simple-minded. And it kind of evolved into meaning agreeable. And nice means agreeable. Nice never confronts somebody when they're doing something wrong. Nice never stands up to error. Nice is, I'm going to agree with you no matter what, because I'm a nice guy. Right? 
God hasn't called us to be nice. God hasn't called us to be mean or cruel. It doesn't mean we're agreeable all the time, that we agree with whatever anybody tells us or that we don't want to confront somebody when they're wrong. And I think that this, this religion that we're talking about that masks itself as Christianity preaches niceness and tolerance. There's no room for offending anyone. There's no room for exclusive truth claims. You can't say that Christianity is true alone and be nice. That might offend somebody. There's no room for witnessing and telling somebody that they need to turn from their sin and repent. That's not nice. Right? So this, that's, what, that's, what, that's the problem with this. It's not that we should be mean. It's not that we should be cruel. It's not that we should be rude. But that primarily what God has called us to be is not nice, but to be holy. It's different. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. It's not that Christians teach that you can't be happy or that happiness is wrong. God didn't create us to be miserable. right? God didn't say, I want to create some human beings and I really want them to be as miserable as possible. And that's what they're called to be. That's not how God created us. But our, again, happiness as something to be sought for, not only is that not what God created us for, it actually is pretty empty and vapid, and you'll never reach it. Happiness is a, can be a byproduct of seeking after God. And when you seek after God and you, you seek to, to glorify Him and you seek to bring Him honor and glory and you live your life as God has called you to live, oftentimes you find that you're happy. But when you seek happiness, when happiness is what you go after, if happiness is what you make your life's aim to be, you'll always be chasing after it. You won't achieve it. The central goal of life is not to be happy. The central goal of life is to bring glory to God. That's what God created us to do and to be. And because that's how God created us, we will feel fulfilled in doing that often. But that's not our purpose isn't to be happy. Our purpose is to worship God and bring glory to God. The fourth one, that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he's needed to solve a problem. We might fall into that more often than we think. When we come to God in prayer only when difficult things are happening in our lives, when we come to God in prayer only when we have troubles and struggles, that's what we're saying. Even if that's not what we say we believe, that's what we sometimes might truly believe or be tempted to believe is that, oh, I, I need God because there's something I'm struggling with. Or I need God because my life is difficult right now. And then we forget about God when things get back to normal, when things are easy again. Then we forget about God. But God has called us, we'll keep off your lives a living sacrifice. It's an ongoing worship to God. We, we should be submitted to God all the time. And we don't just go to God in prayer when things are difficult, when we have struggles. He ought to be the central consideration of every decision we make. How can I please God? How can I honor God? He needs to be regarded, honored as God. He's not a cosmic therapist. He's not this God in the sky who's just there to solve our problems when we have them. Um, one thing when I was a youth pastor I used to say is that God is not our cosmic sugar daddy. And that sometimes that's kind of how people envision God. Is, oh, I, I need this. I'm going to go to God now. And then you forget about Him after that. That's not who God is. That's not how we've been called to worship God. I think this fifth one is one that's actually, most of us probably would never say we believe, but it's, it's a hard one for us. I find it a hard one. Good people go to heaven when they die. It's not easy to, to proclaim the truth that, that there's only one way to Jesus. There's only one way to God through Jesus Christ. That's not an easy truth. That's a very countercultural thing to say. 
uh, an exclusive truth claim is not an uncomfortable thing to say in this, in this environment, in this world. The Scripture teaches there's only one way to salvation through Jesus Christ, repenting and turning from your sins. Not that we earn our salvation or not that God looks on, at us in our own merits. He looks at us through the merits of Jesus Christ if we turn from our sin and repented. But going back to that beginning with 1 Kings chapter 18, it might seem kind of unrelated. So in, in the first Kings, the people called out to, to Baal. They called out to him to, to help them when they needed him, right? And they, they said, Baal, will you, will you send down your fire and light this altar? And no one heard. And no one listened. There was no one there because Baal wasn't God. And I think unfortunately for people, if this is the God that you worship, he's not going to be there for you either. Because he's not God. This isn't God. God is all-powerful. God is the one who's sovereign. God is the one who's the, the all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipresent God of the universe. He's not a moral therapist. He's not this little God in a box that we can control and that we can tell Him to do this or to do that. And if that's the God you're worshiping, that God doesn't exist. And when you call out to Him for help, He's not going to answer. <laughs> that's not God. If you're worshiping a false god, that god won't answer. If in your life, and I find this happens to a lot of people, they find that they're not happy. And they think it's God's fault. I'm not happy. God's not making me happy. And sometimes I've, I've seen this in very extreme cases. And there was a woman in my, in, in my church, not the church I go to now, but a previous church, who left her, her husband and her kids. She had um, four children. And she left her husband for another man because she said she wasn't happy. And that God wanted her to be happy. And that she said that what she was doing was right because it made her happy. And that's just a very extreme example of this. But she's saying that the way I understand God is that God wants me to be happy. I'm not happy in my marriage. I'm not happy in my situation right now. This makes me happy, so this is what God wants me to do. That's not God. It's not. Well, we can do that in more subtle ways, in smaller ways. Hopefully not that extreme, but that does happen. It's happened. I've seen it happen. Where we can make decisions based on, this, is, this makes me happy. This is what God wants me to do. Sometimes God wants us to go through difficult circumstances. Sometimes it's the trials and the difficulties and the struggles that really cause us to grow and really bring us closer to God. And we, we find ourselves much more mature than we were before. We won't always feel happy in those circumstances. And there's a difference between happiness and joy, right? You can have joy in difficult circumstances, but that doesn't mean that you're, you're happy. You might, might be sad, and that's okay. Sometimes horrible things happen in our lives and we're sad. Sometimes horrible things happen to us and we get angry. That's, that's real life, right? God gave us a range of emotions to deal with different circumstances. But happiness is, is not something we're going to experience all the time. God created us to be holy and to be different. Happiness is often a byproduct when we follow God. But happiness is not the central and end goal. So if you want to be a moralistic, therapeutic deist, which I would encourage you not to be, but here, here are some ways to be one. And I, I have two children. 
And so some of these, some of these relate to children. They won't relate to children, but I, I think through these lens a lot. When you raise your children, ask, what will make, ask your children, what will make you happy? What do you want to be when you grow up? What's going to make you happy? What makes you happy? What do you want to do? Does this sport make you happy? Does this instrument make you happy? Um, I find that I struggle with this more than you would think. That, for instance, and this is a way that my wife brought up to me, something that that you just say and you don't think about it. That when my two-year-old, he throws his toys and and they they have a risk of breaking. And I I say to him, Patrick, if you throw your toys, they're going to break and and you'll be sad. You won't be happy. You see the values that, that get seeped into, into my life because it's in the culture around that instead of saying, hey, we have a value of we take care of what God has given us and we're going to be a good steward of what God has given us, that this value of being happy is seeped in and I say, hey, Patrick, the reason you shouldn't throw your toys is because it will make you unhappy. You see, you see how that just easily seeps into our lives and we, we see things through those prisms. And that's a small example, but that's an example that, of things that Oh, you got to be think, you got to think about that. Is that really the reason why we take care of our things? Is so that we'll be happy, or are we taking care of it because God has has made us a steward of what He's given us, and we should take good care of things? Should we take care of our bodies because it makes us happy, or should we take care of our bodies because we're, we're a steward of them and we want to honor God with it? Those types of things, and you can name any any number of things. It's not just with your children, but with yourself. What is your motivating? What is your motivation? For doing things. What is your motivation in your job? Is it so that I will be happy? Or will it be so that I can bring God glory? Because if you make decisions based on whether you'll be happy, you may do some things that God wouldn't be pleased with. That's a different set of standards. Sometimes following God means choosing the harder road. In the end, sometimes happiness is a byproduct. It really is. I'm not trying to say that God doesn't want us to be happy. That's just not why God created us. And it should never be our central goal. It should never be why we do what we do. Another way to be a moralistic, therapeutic deist is I don't want to offend anyone. I just want to agree with anyone. I want to get along with everyone. I don't feel like it's my, ever my business to tell somebody that they're wrong. And I think sometimes the word love has really been tainted in our culture. And tainted maybe isn't the right word. It's been sapped of all of its meaning. If I love someone who's doing something destructive to themselves, who's destroying their lives with, um, with their life choices, but I don't want to offend them and I don't say anything to them because I don't want conflict. Do I really love that person? No. Right? I'm being tolerant. I'm tolerating them. I'm allowing them to make their own choices. I'm being nice. I'm being agreeable. But sometimes love means confronting somebody and saying, hey, the choices that you're making are destructive. The choices that you're making are wrong. So there's a, there's a big difference. A moralistic therapeutic deist wants to be agreeable. They're not going to go to somebody and say, hey, you need to repent and turn to Jesus. It's not nice. It's not agreeable. Another way to be a moralistic, therapeutic theist is only think about God when you're having a bad day or only think about God on Sundays or only think about God when you need something. Other than that, you can forget about Him. Because God is there for you. That's the, that's the underlying belief of this. Don't ever think 
that God's will for you might be hardship or difficulty or suffering. If you believe that, you might be a moralistic, therapeutic deist. Don't believe that God has any expectations of you. That would make you a moralistic, therapeutic deist. One of my favorite quotes is from Augustine. I don't know if you've heard of Augustine, but he was a a theologian in in the 4th century. And he talked about the major difference between God from the view of the pagans and God from the view of, of Christians. And God from the view of pagans, he 